friends, and welcome to the Coffee and Deer podcast. I'm your host, Nick Penizzato, here with the good doctor, Mr. Mike Groman. And today we're going to be talking silencers, or suppressors if you will, with Brandon Maddox of Silencer Central. So we're certainly looking forward to learning more about suppressors. I know hunters have a lot of questions. The doctor and I have a lot of questions. And also Silencer Central has become a real giant in the industry and uh, one of the really cool things about them is that they make the process of owning a suppressor very easy. And so for those of us that have questions, that's a good thing. What's happening there, doctor? Oh, not too much. Just uh, got a little bit of habitat work done over the weekend, taught my son how to run chainsaw. He was interested in doing that. So I let him play with the small saw and fell his first few trees and I think he did a great job so I might have some help so you might be partially off the hook but you're never completely off the hook for helping me (laughs) well that's all good news love to hear that for sure hey it's an ask NDA anything episode all right and I gotta tell you I have one here Mike that's actually a special request for you oh god almighty okay go yeah. ahead and i didn't give you any heads up either because you know i want to put you on the spot but uh, just so that everybody's clear here i think what i'm really doing is i'm just sort of facilitating the show here for the doctor and his fans but uh anyway <laughs> uh we got a couple good questions so let's go ahead and get through those and uh this first one's interesting because it comes from paul in south dakota and our guest today is also from south dakota uh, Brandon is from South Dakota, so we have a sort of a South Dakota theme today. Good. And so this is a real, I like these simple ones, simple in terms of it's not a big complex question, but he just simply says, would you consider using a decoy before the rut? And I'll take a stab. Okay. The, the first thing I'll say is the rut is like, a lot of times I hear people say the rut, like it's just like this thing, this one thing. And it's really not one thing. It's a very complex period of time where a lot of different things are going on and there are different phases of the rut. And so it's not as simple as, I mean, it could be as just simple as if he's saying any period of the rut. Okay. So uh, my short answer to this would be, yes, I would consider using a decoy before the rut. And it just depends on your goals. So for example, if your goal is to, you want to fill the freezer and try to take a doe early season. Now I will say sometimes does in particular get a little frustrated with decoys, but when they do this, it can often present a shot too. So they get frustrated with them and they'll stomp around and put on a big scene, but then they'll proceed to like, they can't help themselves. Like they want to come in and get a closer look. And so, you know, an antsy deer jumping around isn't necessarily the best one to shoot at, but I have certainly seen on many occasions where uh, those decoys just out of a deer's curiosity will draw deer in. And so my short answer is yes. My longer answer, and I know you didn't ask for this, Paul, but I'm going to give it to you. Um, That pre-rut period when those are getting ready to come in, like that right before peak rut would be my favorite time to have a, a buck decoy out there to try to draw the ire of another buck that's out on the cruise looking for does and so that would be my favorite time although we've had uh, this discussion before here on the show Uh, and so you know that's i think we've talked about some of that then but that's for me mike what would be your answer to this 
I'm going to try and keep it as streamlined as possible because it depends and it depends on a lot of different factors. Um, first and foremost, to answer the question simply, would I use a decoy before the rut? And the answer is yes. But as you said, the rut is not a one day event like Arbor Day. It is actually a period of time as we well know that there's been dough that have been bred the last week of September in certain parts of the country. There's down in Florida, you've hunted in Florida, there's rutting activity that occurs in July. So, but in South Dakota where he's talking about what I use, you know, in that early to mid October range. And my answer is yes, but it's going to depend. I would not put a doe decoy out or even a buck decoy out in the middle of a field in the first, second week of October that deer can see from 100, 250 yards away because what it's going to do is it's going to create a lot of anxiety because they have a lot of distance to travel before they get to that decoy. And when it doesn't move and they've been moving, all of a sudden it creates a certain amount of anxiety in them that might interfere with your shot unless you have a firearm. So if you're hunting with a bow, like I'm thinking about in my mind, if I'm gonna use a decoy in those earlier phases of the rut, if you will, pre-rut times, I want it to where it's gonna be in a small little tighter food plot I'm going to um, maybe put some backing uh, behind it, some type of a brush pile, but I'm gonna have it still out in the field because deer won't stand right up next to a brush pile in the field. They wanna have a buffer zone, but I wanna use it as more of a screen. And I wanna actually have it where the deer have to get into the field first and then see it. And then they're distracted by it to give me a shot. I think that works great for bucks and doe. So those are the scenarios. It's very tight for me. Uh, I just wouldn't uh, put it out there willy nilly and hope for the best. I have, I'd have to have specific criteria to optimize the point of putting it out there in the first place. Okay. Well, there you have it, Paul, a couple of different uh, versions of that answer. And, uh, I would listen to the doctor more than me. I've had some success using decoys. He's hunted with them more than I have. I am one, frankly, I try to stay away from a lot of extra stuff out in the woods if I can, and just try to be where the deer are. But again, have had some success with the decoys. Good question though. That's a good one. I like that one. All right. Here's the one that is specifically for the doctor. Okay. And this is from Greg from Florida. He says for the doctor, and this actually goes back to last episode where we talked to Paul Anir of Cuddyback. He said, would you recommend getting solar panel, solar panels or other power sources? I assume he means like bigger batteries than double A batteries. This is other, other than double A batteries for the Cuddy Link system. I just got one and we'll wait for your answer before I deploy. So. Wow, he's spend, putting a lot of pressure on me. Spend his money, man. He He's basically saying whatever you say is what I'm doing, which is, you know, scary in its own right, but let's roll with it. <laughs> All right, well, let's, I, I will be considered of his finances because I don't want a phone call from potentially his significant other. So, but what I will say is, um, yeah, I have used the Cuddy Link system, believe it or not, as I said last week, with alkali batteries I, I, or alkaline batteries. I haven't um, put lithium in them too often. Do I put lithium in batteries? Of course, I, or in cameras, I do. But because of the way that I buy them, I just, you know, if I see a, an 18 or a 20 pack, I have been using the, um, oh, what are they called? The Everetti. 
EverReady Max, I think. It's their silver with a little black top on them. I've gotten some great results in lock with those. But I will have to say, after talking to Paul, I am they're coming out with a new solar panel that can work in indirect or filtered sunlight. And I have a lot of, uh, I shouldn't say a lot, but I have a lot of uh, evergreen trees on my property. So I'm going to the solar panels in the future here. And the only reason is because unfortunately my property, the way that it lays out is our house is on the westerly side of our 60 plus acres. And so I'm always, I have to figure out ways to access with the wind most commonly to my back or coming in from the south. So for me, I'm changing over to solar panels so that I do not have to go in and disturb my deer as much. Because uh, in upstate New York, it's a lot of hunting pressure around. They don't tolerate too much of that. What I will tell you is that if you are in a state where either, you know, like the Midwest, like I'm going to use Illinois just because I have firsthand experience there is that I found the deer in Illinois to be a little less skittish. Now, if you're from Illinois, don't, you know, don't throw any hate my way. I'm just saying compared to where I live in Pennsylvania and my place in New York, the deer seemed more relaxed. They weren't every little snap of a twig. They weren't looking around and jumping and startling. If I know um, professionals can go in, they drive their four-wheelers in, they drive their trucks in, they just have to stand on their four-wheeler or stick their hand out of their truck or an e-bike and it doesn't seem to affect deer movements and deer patterns. In my place, it does. So um, if you have a place where your entrance regularly on a regular basis into the woods to check cars, or in this situation, if you're gonna use the cutting link system with the cellular unit, that's gonna send right to you. If you're just going in to check batteries, um, I'm saying you might not need the cellular system. If or the, I'm sorry, the um, solar system. But if you're in a situation where it is a very tricky location, you never want to have to go in throughout the entire season. And the solar panel, um, to me, sounds like a, a much better way to go. So I hope I didn't, I didn't really answer your question. I just gave you information. That's kind of what I do with my children. I kind of lay out the pluses and minuses and let you make your best pick. But um, if that helps you save your money and if you, or if you have the money to burn, obviously the solar panels are going to be a much better way to go just for laying down scent disturbance in the area. You might be able to get through, as Paul said, he could get through almost a half a year without even having to go in to an area. So that's going to definitely, especially with older mature bucks, be a much better prescription. So um, I hope that answers your question. I kind of rambled a little bit there because, again, that's the way my mind works. I look at almost every single option. and It takes me a bit to kind of get out what I'm trying to say. So I apologize for the long answer, but um, there you have it. Well, we got to give one of these guys the hat. And uh, I guess hmm, it's a tough one. I'm a little mad at Greg because you know, he just used me to get to you. It's almost like hand Mike this note that says, do you like me? Yes or no. So I feel a little, you know, upset by that, but uh, I do feel like that that was, it got an in-depth answer from the doctor, which a bunch of people probably can benefit from. So let's go ahead and give it to Greg. Uh, Greg, I would advise that you send me a question sometime and, and send it to the doctor and say, <laughs> hey, can you ask Nick this question? And we'll go from there. Hey, no wonder he's not asking me because we're going to have the B team report at the end of the show. Um but I just had a BT moment already at the beginning of the show, and that is I forgot to mention our show sponsor, which is also Silencer Central. It makes sense. That's who our guest is. They are a sponsor of the NDA, as they are several other conservation groups, which we appreciate. 
And uh, I just want to also mention they take compliancy uh, very seriously. And uh, we're going to talk about that uh, certainly on the show with Brandon. And also I would tell you to check out their Learn tab on their website, which will also walk you through a lot of the steps of the things that we hope to talk with Brandon about as well during the interview. So that's our show sponsor for today. Uh, one other sort of public service announcement, Quality Whitetails Magazine is showing up in mailboxes right now. And um, in the magazine this time, when, whenever the issue comes out, I like to talk about a couple things that are in it uh, to, to highlight them, but also to remind folks that may not already be members that don't get to see these articles to, to become a member and you'll get the magazine. But uh, this one, we have the report from our business, uh, basically a, a little mini annual report from NDA's business from 2021, and we have our honor roll of donors in there. So take a look at that. See all the fine people who made a contribution to us last year, which we appreciate. Uh, also a really cool article in here uh, by our friend Brian Grossman. Uh, somehow, by the way, he gets to write about all the cool hunting stuff. It's like, I don't know. I have to got to know somebody around here, apparently, to get to write that stuff. But uh, his article, it's called A Case For and Against Summer Scouting is a really good article. That's a good one to check out. Also, I think some of the things that the doctor just talked about with getting in and out and checking cameras and that type of thing is part of it. So that's a good article. We got uh, things in here about things to do in the summer that'll benefit you in the fall, uh, safe to use herbicides in the woods, uh, just a little bit of everything for anybody. We even also have a uh, article in here about how a professional chef makes venison sausage, which that's making my mouth water just thinking about it. All right. I'll tell you what, I had a good, there was another good, I would hate to pass it by because I'm all about, you know, being in the healthcare field, but Matt Ross did a nice job with that article on uh, tick and uh, tick-borne diseases and some of the newer diseases that we're starting to see surface in and around the country. So that's a good read. Yes, absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up, Mike. Thank you. All right. Let's go ahead and get into the interview. This is an interesting one. If you've ever wanted to know anything about silencers or suppressors, this is the show for you. So let's go ahead and bring in our guest, Brandon Maddox. Brandon Maddox is the founder and CEO of Silencer Central, he has held leadership positions in sales and management, various different positions, but also a cool fact about Brandon is he also is a pharmacist, which is pretty awesome. I'm not sure how often that pharmacy and silencers mix, but we're going to find out. Uh, he went to North Carolina University and also Duke University, which might be the most interesting thing. That would almost be like someone going to Alabama and Auburn. And so- totally. Yeah, exactly. So I didn't know you could do both, but apparently you can. And he got his MBA at Duke University. Very impressive career. And uh, Silencer Central is a, a sponsor partner of the National Deer Association. So Brandon, thank you for being here with us today. And why don't you tell us a little bit about you? Yeah, no. Hey, thanks for the opportunity. Super excited to talk to you and, and your audience. Um, you know, I, I guess I'm just a normal guy, a pharmacist that, um, you know, decided to start varmint shooting and realized that there had, to, there had to be a better way than driving five hours, taking a shot and all the, all the prairie dogs sort of disappeared after they hear the first shot. Um, and just kind of went down the whole path of, you know, acquiring a suppressor 
and then um, not having a great experience acquiring it and actually not buying the right ones the first few times and thinking I'll just get my own license and, uh, you know, found out that I could probably make the process easier. And there was a whole lot of other people out there interested as well. But, you know, about me, so I was born in the South, born in Alabama, raised in Georgia, went to school in North Carolina, as you mentioned, did undergrad pharmacy school at Chapel Hill. Um, then I worked in the pharmaceutical industry, like in sales, sales management, marketing, marketing management, kind of moved my way up the ranks. Um, they, they told me to go back and get my MBA. So, um, you know, I always say that Duke is a private entity and I sent my applications to both Duke and Chapel Hill for MBA school on the exact same hour. And, you know, Duke, Duke was smart enough to read in the cover letter from the CEO of Glaxo where I work that wherever Brandon chooses to go, we're going to pay 100% of it. So Duke <laughs> very quickly called me and said, Mr. Maddox, we'd like to interview you. And before I knew it, a check had already been cut for my tuition for the next two years. And then probably a month or two later, Chapel Hill called and said, hey, you know, we're excited. You went to undergrad and pharmacy school here. You were very active and we're excited to have you back. And I'm like, it's too late. I've already applied, been accepted, and I'm headed to Duke. <laughs> which um, it is what it is. But so I spent a lot of time in the pharmaceutical industry. I met my wife. She's also a pharmacist. She's from South Dakota. That's how I got here. Um, and, you know, it was probably a good pivot for me. I did, you know, some pharmaceuticals here for a while. And oddly enough, um, I ended up getting terminated by my employer because they felt like that, I guess, reputational risk might be the right word to think about it. Kind of the word hmm. I hear from banks when they won't lend me money because of the firearms. But um and I remember calling my lawyer saying, I think that they're going to fire me for selling silencers on the weekend on my own time. And he's like, Brandon, they're a New Jersey company that's French based. And at that point I was working for Sanofi and he's like, dude, they've already fired you. They just haven't told you yet. And he was exactly right. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I got to ask you this. Uh, so as I grew up here in the East as did the doctor. And, but then I lived in Bismarck, North Dakota for a time. And yes. that was a substantial culture shock. And so yes. you coming from the South and going to South Dakota, which is not the South. Yes. <laughs> Tell us about that. You know, so people always think the weather would be an issue for me. It's the wind, you know, like when I, I told my wife, I'm seeing the, our grill move across the deck due to the wind. To me, that's just not normal. Um, you know, it's interesting because that is kind of part of the story. Cause once I moved here, you know, I started working gun shows and, you know, if you've ever been to a gun show, you know, it's typically not people that's that are from the South going to gun shows in the Dakotas. Um, and then also typically that's not people who went to college for eight years, you know, it's a different demographic. So it did struggle, but I will tell you, Bismarck is probably one of our better areas. It's just great for hunting and fishing a lot of outdoors people. Um, a lot of people quickly saw the benefit of, you know, putting a suppressor on a rifle and taming the recoil and also helping the sound. So, um, Bismarck was a great location for us and still is, but yeah, it was definitely a culture shock. Just, you know, I did find that, um, you know, most people are typically conservative. They, they enjoy hunting. So there was a lot of similarities to the South there. You know, actually I moved here from Florida and I say the only similarities I could find between Gainesville, Florida and Sioux Falls, South Dakota was neither state has state income tax. That's the only <laughs> thing I could find. <laughs> well, that's a good commonality. I would say <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. So I got it. You touched on it a little bit, but I want to dig a little bit further. What really was that moment or what inspired you to say, you know what, we can do better on the suppressor front and really prompted you to, to move ahead with Silencer Central? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. I honestly, um, and it's not a knock on local gun stores. It's just that a local gun store, in my mind, 
they're set up for what I would call almost like a single transaction. Like you walk in, they help you find the perfect firearm. They do a background check and then you leave. So to me, it's a single point of contact. They help satisfy that single need. And I know I'm oversimplifying it, but with purchasing a suppressor, there's so much back and forth that you really have to manage that communication. Um, I sometimes use a crude example. I say we're like an OBGYN. You're going to be talking to us for a long time. Um, you know, it's sort of, it's it's a process. So I just didn't feel like the local store was you know necessarily wired for that, um, and it it created like a frustration for me to go through the process of buying one and loving it, but realizing I probably didn't buy the right one. And then going through the process again with the same store, it just created so much like anxiety. Um, and I was probably lucky that my wife, you know, I, I mentioned she's a pharmacist, both her parents are pharmacists, they own a pharmacy, and he had a federal farms license in his pharmacy. So I thought my wife would probably be a good person to pitch this idea of me getting a federal farms license for my house. And, and, you know, really the initial pitch was just to get suppressors for her, for myself. And then she has, you know, brothers and brother-in-laws, they're all dentists, they're all gun nuts. So I, that was kind of the sales pitch to her. But um, I think after I worked the first gun show, I could tell instantly that there was a huge amount of curiosity, especially with South Dakota being on the border of Minnesota and Iowa. And at that time in 2005, you know, the, the 2000 era, they were illegal in both Iowa and Minnesota. So there was just this mystique and sort of like, and I could just, Coming from a sales and marketing background, I'm like, wow, there's something here that if I have uh, at my first gun show a table that's, you know, not much bigger than a whole, enough to hold two silencers that were my personal ones used, if that's all I had on my table and I had a crowd of 20 or 30 people and it wasn't very well organized, I wasn't. And to have that much interest the whole time, the whole show, the whole weekend, I knew that, gosh, there's definitely an opportunity here to help them have an easier process of acquiring a suppressor. So tell us about the company. I mean, now it's, I guess one of the things that, that we'd like to know is, is it beyond your wildest dreams already? Uh, yeah. But, but uh, take us through that and also just kind of where the company is now. And then we want to dig in. There's a couple of really cool things that are front and center on your website we want to ask you about, but overall. Yeah, good question. So I would say, um, you know, I started out initially just working events. So I was, um, you know, basically just working the events in South Dakota because I had a license here in South Dakota and I would work all the gun shows in South Dakota. And then what I realized is that when you go to like Aberdeen, uh, South Dakota, a lot of the participants to the gun show are from North Dakota. So I kind of got in my head, gosh, it'd be nice to have a license up in North Dakota because um, a silencer suppressor is very similar to a handgun. You can only buy it from a dealer that's licensed in the same state where you're resident, where your driver's license is based. So my second location was North Dakota and it was really just to tap into uh, the markets that bordered um, where I was working in northern part of South Dakota. But once I started working in North Dakota, um, the oil fields were really booming. And uh, a lot of those workers from the oil fields were coming from Montana. So I got a Montana license. And then us being so close to Nebraska, I got a Nebraska license. So our evolution went from South Dakota events to then we had 12 states. So I did every state that touched South Dakota, including Wisconsin, because you'd see a lot of people, Wisconsin and Minnesota. And that was really our business model. We would work events. I mean, we started doing farm shows, gun shows, sportsman shows. I used to say anywhere with guys that have disposable income and preferably their wife's not at the event with them because <laughs> their wife would sometimes give them a hard time about purchasing a toy. No. So, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's always the biggest like obstacle you're here to show. Well, let me talk to my wife. That's why I always say I love the farm shows. If a farmer wants a suppressor, they write a check. They don't say, let me check on my wife. I mean, they just, well, they just write a check. 
for all the wives listening to the show and that are mad now, please send your complaints to the doctor, Mr. Mike Groman. We'll get you the address at the end of the show. But uh, no, I get it, Brandon. I get it. No, so we started working at events. And again, the reason why we did farm shows is because they're in the summer. Uh, gun shows were in the winter. So just trying to figure out how to make that work. Um, then, oddly enough, I was talking to our local jeweler. And it was a social event. And my local jeweler said, hey, he said, I sell more jewelry at a hunting event over four days than I do the entire year here in South Dakota in Sioux Falls. And I thought, man, what event could that be? We're kind of good at events. I'd love to go to that event. And it was Safari Club International. So basically, um, you know, the guy's buying an $80,000 hunt. So his wife wants an $80,000, you know, piece of jewelry. So, um, and at that point I realized that um, I'm gonna have to be licensed in all 42 states if I wanna be able to service that market. You know, I applied to Safari Club International and I think they probably looked and said, this guy is a nobody and they told me no. So then the next year I said, I'm going to double down. I'm going to beef up our infrastructure. I'm going to beef up and get licensed in more states. And I'm going to make a stronger push to get into that event. And we got into the Safari Club International and then that was the initial push that I've got to get licensed in every state. Because if someone walks up that lives in Utah or Arizona, I got to make sure that we're licensed in that state. So that strategy worked really well because as we all know, that's about the time that um, COVID and the pandemic hit. So all my employees are looking at me with, gosh, you have 100% of your business coming through events. Now all events are canceled indefinitely until who knows how long. And typically events are heavy for us January, February, March. I mean, we'll probably work 250 events a year. So a lot of people listening have probably seen us at events. But the core of the business comes, you know, January, February, March when it's cold, when people don't have anything to do outdoors. And so it was a good pivot for us to sort of um, go to a direct consumer marketing campaign where we started doing print ads, started doing marketing online. And it was more of a, almost like a touchless process. I mean, you can buy a suppressor from us without ever meeting with us in person or without going to a sheriff or without going to a store, we can mail it directly to your front door. So that really, really worked out well during the pandemic. And what's great about now is, you know, Silencer Central is able to go back to all the events we used to start adding more events, but then also continue to kind of double down on the direct consumer. So just from a business, it's evolved from events only in South Dakota to events all over the country to direct consumer marketing to now both of those. And as far as the growth, I think the biggest um, realization for me is my first job when I moved to South Dakota from Florida is I managed a Melder pharmacy for Cigna Teldrug. I was the pharmacist in charge. Still not sure why they hired me. I'd never worked as a pharmacist, but I think they liked I was registered <laughs> as a pharmacist in three or four states and that I, maybe the Duke MBA thought uh, he knows what he's doing. So I managed the pharmacy. And what's interesting is that's the building we now occupy. So I saw this building was for sale. I saw Cigna was shutting down their mail order operations. And I liked the idea that it had a warehouse and also office facility. But the first time I walked through it and it's 50,000 square feet, I'm like, wow, we'll never use all of this. We should start trying to rent stuff out. I mean, we just went through a year and a half remodel and it's completely full. <laughs> <laughs> we have a hundred million dollars worth of suppressors in our warehouse. 99% of them are already sold, just waiting for the feds to approve. So it is, it is kind of uh, like you're in awe when you look at two stories worth of suppressors stacked to the ceiling, you know, all the way up in a warehouse. And it's, it's an impressive visual. Yeah, well, I'm certainly in awe just hearing about it. And we are going to get here in a, in a bit to why this matters to hunters and how some of those suppressors sitting in Brandon's inventory need to find their way into your gun cabinets at home. Uh, so we are going to get there. And a couple things related to that. 
and this is impressive to me, uh, and, and I'm sure is important to the doctor too, because we are big on safety. We're big on rules, you know, following rules and being smart. And this is right on your website. And it was, it was impressive to me. Uh, it says you're passionate about the compliancy knowledge and community education and firearm sound suppression. So it's not just about doing it and selling, uh, you know, all of those two floors worth of silencers. It's also, you want to do it the right way. And yeah. so take a second to talk about why that's so important to you. Yeah, it's a good question. Cause I, I do think it's somewhat non-intuitive in the environment we sell in. Um, so one thing I realized very quickly, the ATF for the Dakotas is based out of St. Paul, Minnesota. So when I first started and I called them and said, hey, I have a lot of questions about what I need to do now that I have two locations. It was kind of unclear to me from a process perspective, how I handle that, how all that works. And I found out really quickly, and it's not a knock on the ATF, but the local ATF in Minnesota said we just silencers are not legal in Minnesota at that point. And they just did not have any. Um, feedback for me. It's like they couldn't, basically they said, you got to follow the rules, but we can't really explain to you what those rules are. It's kind of on you to figure that out. And um, it just, it, it became a quick realization to me that to scale a business, you have to really know the rules exceptionally well. And that is to protect obviously your customers, but also your employees and yourself really. Um, and, you know, I just, I decided to double down. I took on sort of a personal mission to understand the NFA, National Firearms Act process, the rules, the regulation, the compliance. My goal was to have more knowledge than anyone else in the country. Um, and that's sort of been a daily process of sitting on the front row every time ATF does presentations, going to socials where I can ask them questions where they're more, more open to answer questions when it's not written. Um, just really seeking an understanding of how they work and get their feedback. And I think they would truly say that, I would say when I'm in the room, there's typically only one or two other people I feel like know as much as I do about the compliance. And the hard part for the ATF is they have so many things they cover. So there's, I've only sat in the room, maybe one or two people that I feel like really understand all the compliance behind everything that I do. And I think that's helped us from uh, um, just be able to execute better. We have a great working relationship with ATF. Um, you know, we don't always agree, but I think that it adds some flavor to the conversation, but what has really worked well for us and, you know, Silencer Central's whole mission and whole goal is to make the process easy because my consumer insight from working shows for, you know, almost 18 years is that people, people want a suppressor if they can reduce recoil and sound. Their, their biggest obstacle is the process. So we've worked with the ATF over the last, you know, 20 years to how do we fine tune that process. And a lot of those discussions are, um, hey, you know, the regs were written in 68 or 1938, and there's no way to do this digitally. It's not spelled out digitally. Here's what we would like to do. It doesn't conflict with anything currently on the books. How do we do this? And some of those conversations took months. Some of them took three or four years, but we have four or five uh, sort of variances that are unique to us that ATF lets us to do stuff that I'm not going to say it's not what's in the guidelines, but it's a it's a different way of doing things digitally so that, uh, you know, the, the the benefit to ATF is it makes it easier for them to regulate me when they come in. The other benefit is it makes us more efficient and it also easier for us to hold our internal employees accountable. So, you know, one of our core missions as a company and one of our values is integrity. And I always use the example of compliance. I can tell you numerous examples where I've called ATF and said, I want to do it this way. And they say, you can't. 
and it's hurt my business and other, other people in the industry are still doing it, but we know that we can't because we asked, but I'd like to know. So that I know we're not doing the wrong thing. So um, again, I think also that, you know, in a business that's growing this rapidly and as rules change, I think the ATF typically gives us the benefit of the doubt. If something doesn't go well, we sit down and talk about it and figure out how to fix it instead of being accusatory of we're doing something wrong or, you know, it's just, it's a different relationship. I know that most of the, the farms industry, and I would say maybe people online are very anti-ATF. They're very like the ATF should go away. Um, I don't disagree with that, but at the end of the day, they're in charge. And if they make the rules and they get to interpret them, our goal has been, how do we play by the rules and how do we figure it out? Which I would say is a very different approach than most companies. But again, it helps us sleep well at night because we don't have to worry about compliance issues for our business model or our customers. So Brandon, I guess that reflects back on to what you were saying in, re in regards to going to those shows and having so many people standing around and interested, even though you didn't have a, a big spread, is that to understand that process seems very convoluted and very difficult. And the fact that you've actually done all the legwork, I guess would allow people to feel a little bit more comfortable when dealing with a company that actually has been that sincere about making sure they're crossing their T's and dotting their I's. So can you talk about, you know, maybe some stories or some situations where, or what, what people might actually be, looking at as misconceptions that you can clear up for us? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that, you know, a lot of times people have their paperwork delayed, you know, like right now we probably have, I don't know, 50,000 applications out there that we did with the ATF that are paper. And some of them have been out there a year and a half. So mm -hmm. I think a lot of our customers think that, well, ATF's just sitting on their hands. They don't want to approve these. Biden's telling them not to. Um, you know, I've had chances to tour the National Farms Branch up in West Virginia on numerous occasions. I try to go annually. Um, I mean, I sense these people are working as hard as they can. I sense they're putting in overtime. I sense they're committed to pushing these through. I think it's just it's just a bottleneck. I mean, they're currently touching these um, paper applications 42 times before they come back to us approved. And I always kiddingly say, anytime the federal government touches anything 42 times physically, you got a problem. It's just going to take longer. Now, of course, the systems evolved to digital, and we have some that are coming back in you know, like 10 days. So I think that paper is going to eventually get washed away. But you know, I I I don't know all I so. Again, I'm licensed in 42 states. I have uh, physical FFLs in, in each of those states. We get inspected. I had to meet with each of those physically in person. I've probably met in my lifetime with probably 200 plus ATF employees. And I could think of only one that I felt like he was kind of out to get me or trying to catch me or trying to make me look bad, where 99.9% .9 of my interactions with them have been professional. Um, I, I, I'm, maybe it sounds boastful, but because our niche is so unique, typically I know more than each of them I meet with, which probably helps the conversation because it's harder for them to, to, to leverage over you if you know more than they do. But um, yeah, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about ATF just from my perspective, not necessarily on the criminal side, but on the industry enforcement side. And I think that um, I, I think that I personally, I found them you know, fairly easy to work with in most cases. So that's probably a, a big misconception. Um, and the other thing I think another misconception is that 
people have to realize that the ATF interprets the rules that Congress creates. So it's easy to blame ATF for the process and the delays. But if Congress changes the process or, you know, then it helps ATF manage it differently. So it's easy to throw it at ATF when really it's, you know, talk to Congress. They're the ones that need to change the process if that's a frustration. So I don't know if I answered your question or gave enough examples there. Well, I, th I think you did because as you said, at least from my perspective, even though between Nick and I, I've, I've been involved in the firearms, not so much industry, but uh, in firearms more than he has, you know, I competitively shot, my daughter did as well, and she was nationally ranked. But to me, even, you know, silencers slash suppressors, they, they were still a mystery to us because we didn't yeah. need them and use them in sure. competition. So there was a lot of mystery around those. And I can see why people would gravitate to your table to try and gain more information if they're really interested in that type of product. Yeah. And I, and I would say that, um, you know, my secret sauce for my entire business working in an event was as soon as someone was convinced that I knew hundred percent what I was talking about, the next question was, well, how do I get started? They didn't say I need a Ford or Chevy or Porsche. I mean, they just said, wow, these people really have it pulled together. They really understand this. And, it, and to me, that was the unanswered question they wanted answered. And once they saw you had that nailed, then they were interested in doing business with you. So that's why we've continued to kind of double down and focus on that, because that is the mystery of the whole industry. Because if you talk to anyone in the industry and ask, do you have one? A lot of times they say no, and you say, why? And the process. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of misconceptions, and let's bring this into the hunting world, because I hear when people bring up suppressors, around me, there's always confusion and misinformation or lack of information. And that's the world you're living in, Brandon, and you're doing a lot to help out with that. So first of all, tell tell our listeners what your own hunting background is. I think that would, uh, they'd like to hear that. And then also uh, transition then into when a hunter does come to you and say, hey, whether it's deer or whatever, what, tell me why I should get one of these things. Yeah, good question. So, you know, what's interesting is I didn't necessarily grow up in a home where there was hunting. Um, I, it, I always say it was in my gene pool because my granddad was a big hunter and so was my uncle. So anytime I got away for the summer, that's when I got to do, do most of my hunting. Um, you know, growing up, growing up in the South, you know, just the basic stuff. Gosh, I think the first thing I actually hunted and shot was you know, my uncle hands me a 410. He said, you see that snake going across the pond over there? And I'm like, I can fix that real quick. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, a lot of Southern hunting, if you will, deer, squirrel, um, more, you know, and then once I moved to South Dakota, I don't know that honestly, I'd ever even heard of a prairie dog, but just being a regional manager out in this area for the pharmaceutical industry, I started seeing, you know, these rats in the field and what I, you know, what I loved about it is people were excited for you to come shoot them. I mean, things have changed now, but at the time they were like embracing, like, really, you'll come and shoot our prairie dogs. We'd love that. And just make sure you get them all. So um, recently, I would say a big hunting experience I had that was sort of life changing for me. Um, I went to uh, South Africa and hunted for about two weeks for Plains Games. And um, it was super exciting for me. What's interesting there is obviously suppressors are legal. You can buy them at the hardware store. But I just still sense that most of the professional hunters there, even though they had silencers at their disposal, they weren't necessarily using them because their customers that were coming uh, didn't have as much experience or as much, you know, sort of comfort with them. So it's kind of cool to see um, 
you know, the professional hunter and the group and the employees out there at the events and then the people that attended with me, their reaction when we were hunting with a suppressor. So to your question on like, why would I tell someone that they need a suppressor? You know, it's interesting because it's specifically deer hunting for years when I would work shows, guys would say, you know what, Brandon, I only shoot two bullets a year, three bullets, you know, the first two are decided in and once to shoot the deer. Well, why would I need a suppressor for that? That's kind of what I would hear when I first started doing this. And then, you know, I would apply a little pressure on them and say, you know, it's unfortunate you're only shooting three times a year. I think you would shoot more if you had a suppressor because then you don't have to wear earplugs and you don't, you know, you'll have better targets. And what I found over time is when I work these like um, these deer events, like I went to one out in Birmingham um, last year. It's like one of those um, just deer focused deer hunting. Our, our booth was definitely the busiest there. I think that the hunter who traditionally thought I only shoot three times, why would I need one? They realized they probably shoot their gun for non-hunting activities. Um, that other people probably use their gun. I think the other benefit people are seeing is typically when you're hunting with someone, it's a social event. You're either with a friend or with a kid, you're mentoring someone. And to have that ability to be able to continue to communicate um, by not having to put the ear muffs on and putting earplugs in, it's a big deal. It's kind of sometimes understated. The other thing is some guys don't like to admit, but occasionally they might actually miss a shot. And no. my experience, <laughs> of course, of course they tell you when you're talking about a suppressor, oh, I never miss. Um, but you know, if you do miss, what's interesting about a suppressor is that a lot of times they don't even know they were shot at, but they can hear the bullet go past them, the animal, but they can't tell where it came from. Um, which it sounds weird, but like even coyotes, guys would come up to the, to the booth and shows and say, Hey, I shot at the coyote. I missed the bullet dropped behind him. He started running towards me because he had no idea where the actual shot came from. And you hear these stories all the time until you experience it. You know, you hear guys talk about missed shots because they're putting the earphones on and trying to get them set up. You know, the other benefit too is if you shoot and miss and you did scare that one off, typically you can continue to shoot that area because you kind of haven't polluted the area, if you will, from a noise type perspective. You know, the other benefits are recoil. A lot of times to, you know, sort of ethically harvest an animal, maybe for us, uh, for a youngster, they might have to go down a caliber just because the recoil Well, typically with a suppressor, you're going to get the same recoil reduction you would with a muzzle brake. So it's going to, you could use a, you know, you could use a 243 instead of having dropped down to a 223 or something like that. That's a benefit to cut the recoil. Um, you know, it speeds up your bullet a little bit. So uh, people are always worried video games often depict that it slows it down, which is not the case. So it kind of goes back into the myth thing. The other thing you typically see is uh, better accuracy. And it's not the suppressor, it's just the weight on the end of the barrel, kind of like a bull barrel. So again, the benefits of the hunter is it, um, you know, it, it just you have a better enhanced sort of experience from hunting. You don't have to worry about earplugs, earmuffs. If there's other people around you with you, you don't have to worry about protecting their ears, earmuffs. It's going to help your accuracy. It's going to help your shooting if you do miss or if you're able to take an additional animal while you're there. You don't have to worry about having, you know, scared them off. So I would say the biggest thing for me, though, is I told you I used to work shows forever. So you see the guy that bought it one year and you hear back from him the next year. A hundred percent of the time, I've never had a hunter that bought a suppressor who didn't say, man, this is a game changer. I can't believe mm -hmm. you didn't convince me to do this sooner. Yeah. It's like a hundred percent. That's a big deal. Yep. Yeah, it's a hundred. Because my wife, I mean, I could be hard in sales. My wife, you know, I'd come home after spending the whole weekend of the show and she's like, were you hard on people? And I go, there's a couple of guys there that had a hard time convincing to open their wallet. But she's like, does that ever make you feel bad? And I'm like, no, I've been doing it so long that they come back a year later with these huge smiles. Like, gosh, it's a life-changing event. Like to hunt with a suppressor now has changed 
everything. I mean, I even saw last week, we did a youth hunting event with the guys down at Buck Commander in Louisiana. We met with them and they have a camp there and we let their uh, hunter 60 guys um, there's 60 attendees to a camp experience for the first time shooting suppress and seeing the benefit they would have in, you know, deer hunting and just a game changer, just to see the, the look on their face and go, wow, that's a big deal. So let's back up just for a second. I heard you say something in regards to um, projectile velocity. Did you say increase? Yes, it Increases. actually speeds it up. So think of it as like a longer barrel. So basically what I want everyone to, to, to realize then is that, um, if, if you're like me, I actually, I have my ballistics on the, the scope, my scope cap, but um, that could be something like, what are some things that if someone buys a suppressor that they're going to need to do so that they do have a good experience with it? You know, for me, because I didn't want to know, okay, that's going to interfere, you know, like not interfere, but affect my ballistics. Sure. Yeah. No, excellent question. So, you know, again, when I first started doing this, I had a guy call me and he goes, I'm hundred percent convinced that it's going to slow the bullet down. I was like, how about we go chronograph it? He's like, dude, if it speeds it up, I'm buying five. So of course it's bad enough. <laughs> I was like, all right, get your wallet out. He goes, Oh man, I had no idea I was going to do this, but you know, it's not that much five to 10 feet per second. But my experience is typically, you know, you're going to get recoil on your firearm. And a lot of firearms these days are trying to go lighter. So they're using carbon fiber and thinner barrels and smaller. So when you put a suppressor on there and have that extra weight on there, typically you're going to shoot a little bit lower. So my advice is to recite in your suppressor, uh, put recite in your rifle when you put your suppressor on there, and it's going to be zeroed every time you put it on there. So it's not something you got to do every time. So it's just a matter of, and once you shoot suppressed, you're not going to go back to shooting non-suppressed. I can think of like very few examples where anyone said, hey, I, I quit using it. Years ago, like if they would go shoot in a state where they're illegal, I know Illinois is a big state to deer hunt in. Uh, I've got some country singers that go there and they've gotten suppressors from us and they're always worried about taking them to Illinois. So you might not would shoot it there, obviously, but any other area, once you sight it in, it's going to be zeroed. And then every time you put it on, it always shoulders and stops at the same place each time. But typically it's going to shoot a little low because you're not getting as much recoil jump. All right. One more question. And I think I'm going to turn it back over to Nick. So let's talk about the process. So someone, you're, we're talking about buying the suppressor. Yeah. Um, let's talk about mounting it. How difficult is that? Let's clear that up for the listener. Good question. So, you know, again, earlier I talked about Silencer Central's whole goal is to make the process super simple. Like we try to manage everything. What I did notice at gun shows is there was this obstacle of who do I have threaded? Because with a rifle, if it doesn't come threaded, you're going to want to have it threaded. So we did bring that in house. And it's not something that we want. Like I, some manufacturers years ago used to say, if we don't thread it, we don't warranty it. That's not the case with us. We just want to make it easy. So if a person has a rifle that's not threaded, that's sometimes an obstacle. Well, I don't want to buy it. I have to thread all my barrels. And I always say, well, here's my experience once you thread one barrel and use it you're going to want them all threaded and it's going to be a big change so you know we have a cnc lathe here we have a gunsmith takes every gun apart and a machine that you know we can do 200 barrels a day that's about how many we usually get in of rifles to thread so i think it's a good idea to get it threaded by a professional on a you know a cnc lathe i think we charge like 85 bucks it's not expensive it's just you know a matter of getting it done but one thing i would say is i found 99.9 percent .9 of our warranty claims were bad threading now hopefully Hopefully that's changed as suppressors have gotten more popular, but typically uh, maybe the shoulder isn't right or maybe the barrel, um, you know, is not threaded properly and it kind of offset the silencer and you get like a baffle strike, it would touch in the inside. So that could be an issue if you don't get it threaded properly. Big reminder with ARs is to take that crush washer off because that can change the, um, you know, make it where it's not on there concentric and straight as well. 
I'm glad you got into process because I'm going to head there and from a different level. And I'm glad uh, that the doctor went there because I was curious about that too. But the process of getting suppressors. So, okay, you got a couple shaved-headed rednecks like the doctor and I. We come up to your table and we say, we want to get us one of these here suppressors. What is the process? The minute we say we're in and we want to buy and we pick something out that works for us or for our needs, what happens? Good question. So typically I tell people to call just, I mean, I got 30 guys, they're all hunters. You can just walk by their, their, uh, their stations out here. There's guns everywhere. So it's good to talk to other people and bounce ideas off of them. I think what a big learning for most people is that we have a 30 cal suppressor. It's going to work on your 223, your 243, your 270, you know, your 308, your 300 wind mag, your 300 weatherby. Typically we can get you one suppressor. It's going to cover every centerfire rifle you own. And I think that's new information for a lot of people. That's why I say, Hey, just call in. Cause everyone, you know, they think they have this unique caliber, unique barrel, unique gun. And the reality is most guys buy one multi-caliber suppressor and put it on everything. Um, so the, the, so the first step is talk to our folks, see what you need. I mean, one thing I didn't mention is our suppressors are hundred percent titanium. I find guys that hunt don't like a lot of extra weight on the end of the barrel. Don't let someone talk into buying stainless steel. Titanium is super light. And if you can get it, you know, why wouldn't you? Um, but the first step is we would talk to you about which ones you want. And then, uh, you know, I, I think the best analogy that I've come up with for purchasing a suppressor or a silencer is it's most customers have trucks. So I say it's just like buying your truck. The analogy follows all the way through with the exception of when you buy a truck, you could drive it off a lot. With a suppressor, you can't really leave with it. But think of it as a title transfer. The feds have the serial number for the suppressor that you want to acquire. They have it in our name, the, the dealer. So the suppressor is owned by us. And in simplest terms, all the paperwork is we're asking the feds to retitle the ownership of that suppressor from us to you and the feds do a background check via the FBI to make sure you can lawfully own a suppressor. And once that's approved, we can mail it to your front door. Now the feds charge a $200 tax to do that. So again, similar to when you buy a truck, you got to pay tax to get that transfer done. So in simplest terms, that's all we're doing is we're getting enough information so that we could do a background check. Um, so the feds could do a background check on you. And then, so once they approve that, then we can uh, transfer it and mail it to your front door. So paperwork logistically. Now remember these statutes were written in 1938. So they, they seem a little bit archaic, but what we're gonna need from each customer is basically a two by two photo. Some people will call it a passport photo, but it's just, just really, most guys will stand up against the white wall and just have their spouse or friend take a picture of them and then they just upload it to us. That's one thing we need. The other thing we need is fingerprints because back in 1938, when this was created, there was no national felony database. So we send you the fingerprint cards and the ink and I always say, I know it works well because I never see any complaints. We give you a video to watch and basically you're just printing yourself. And then we give you a self-addressed envelope and you send it back to us. With the exception of getting a picture and you're getting your fingerprints, and that's the, that's the advantage of a show. We would do your fingerprints at that show. So you would leave there fingerprinted. But we do create a gun trust for you, which sounds complicated and crazy. The hard part is a lot, a lot of your local dealers will discourage that because I think that a, it's a service they don't offer. B, it adds an additional level of complexity in their mind. But our experience in 20 years is that the gun trust is 100% the best way to go. So we create a free gun trust for you based on your state of residency. So again, we're transferring the silencer ownership from us to your trust. And then once the feds approve that transfer to your trust, we can add anyone else you want that's 18 or older onto that trust. And then they can possess that silencer and use it when you're not there. But again, we do all that paperwork digitally. We, do, we create the paperwork for you. You sign it digitally. You submit it to us digitally. 
we upload that information to the feds. We upload to the digital uh, website for the ATF. We upload your photo. We upload the gun trust that we create. We upload all the ATF paperwork. We upload your digital fingerprints, and then we hit submit. Um, what happens then is once it's approved, the ATF e emails us an approval, and they also at the same time email you an electronic approval. And then once it's approved, the silencer gets mailed from our main location here in South Dakota to the location in the state where you live. And then our employee there mails it from that location to your front door. So yeah, in simplest terms, it's the title transfer with a background check done to make sure you can lawfully own. And then other than that, it's pretty easy. So then when you want another one, we have your fingerprints on file, we have your trust on file, we have your photo on file. It's easy just to resubmit another one. So it really is one-stop shopping. I love it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and some of the other things, and I told you we had the free trust. A lot of people charge for that. You know, I just, South Dakota has a law that if you practice, if you're practicing law, you can be charged with a felony. So, you know, we, we hired attorneys to create all these. And so we're not in the process. I don't want anyone ever think we're charging for a trust because we're giving a legal advice. That's not the case. It's just, the think of the trust as an entity that owns the suppressor so that you can have joint ownership. But then also it's defined where you can will it to someone when you pass away, which is a big benefit if you have kids. Because if not, it's a process to get rid of them. I talked about barrel threading. The other thing I forget to talk about a lot is that we let people pay while they wait. So if you call up and say, my wife is going to kill me if I spend this much money without getting the product, you know, my sales guys will let you say, hey, why don't you put 200 bucks down a day as long as you pay it off before it's approved. And before we ship it to you, we're all cool. We don't charge interest. We don't charge any fees. There's no, our goal is we're in the boat with you. We want this process to be as smooth as possible. We'll help carry the money for you so that you don't have to. So that's kind of a, another benefit of making it easy. I find most guys, once you tell them that, they're like, you know what? I called to buy one today. I'm going to buy two because if I can pay for it over three or four months, I'm in. Yep. Certainly get that. And the flexibility is key. Folks, I would encourage you also uh he hit on some of these things, but there's also on the Silencer Central website, 10 reasons you should buy from Silencer Central, which I thought was pretty compelling information as I checked it out myself. So, uh, Brandon, I really appreciate your time, as does the doctor. Our listeners, I think, are going to find this fascinating. Our hope is, is that they'll hear this and look into it a little more closely. Hopefully, we send some customers your way. Uh, you can find... Uh, Silencer Central at silencercentral.com also Instagram at Silencer Central and they've got a cool YouTube page as well I've been in all those places check those out is there anywhere else we want to send people Brandon you know I still think the phones I mean I like I think I think hunters in rural areas like to talk to other hunters in rural areas so to just get doesn't mean you have to buy anything but you could just bounce ideas off of I think that what I find from a customer experience we have so much better experience if you called someone because then that person sort of your point of contact through the whole process. And then we also find that, you know, you typically want to refer a friend and you like to have a name. You like to say, hey, you know, I talked to, you know, Drew when I bought mine, I wanted to call Drew. So people like to be able to refer to other people with a specific name. And then everyone feels like they have their person internally kind of managing the process. So yeah, I think the phone is a good way to, you know, connect. Clearly Brandon understands sales and relationships. And that I think speaks to a lot of your great success and congratulations on that. Brandon, thank you. Thank you also to you and your company for being a sponsor level partner of the NDA and not just us, you guys support a lot of organizations, which is impressive. And I always tell our listeners, pay attention to who does that because they don't have to, and you don't have to do it, Brandon, but you do. And we appreciate it. Thank you very much. And thank you for being on the show today. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity, guys. Doctor, I got to tell you, as I, I came into this, I don't want to say completely 
blind to the, you know, how to get a silencer, why would you get one, all that type of thing. I mean, I know a little bit about it just because I'm around the industry, but I'm not, I'm not a huge gun shooter. Not that I, I have plenty of guns. I just am not a shooter all the time. So I learned a ton from Brandon and I feel confident to the point between listening to him and looking on their website that I could very quickly and easily uh, get one of these now and not feel overwhelmed by the process. Well, I will tell you from running around in, in the world of, you know, competitive shooting a little bit is just the sense of confidence that Brandon has speaks volumes to me because there are a lot of small little loopholes and they vary by state. And the fact that he has made it his mission uh, in a sense to understand all of that, to take all of that information to better serve customers. I give him a lot of credit for that. And, um, you know, that goes a long way for someone like me. Absolutely. I mean, he's, he's obviously a very smart businessman, saw an opportunity, took advantage of it, but he did that. And also at the same time did make it really easy for his customers to do business with him. He's also working with uh, the ATF, as he mentioned, so he's working with the feds. He wasn't shy about saying that it's not always fun to do that, but his options are work with them and learn the process and help your customers or fight them the whole time and make it worse. And so I appreciate his approach on that. And for me, the biggest thing, Mike, that, that's interesting to me, I think, is the ear protection part of it, the enjoyment of shooting. I thought it was really interesting that he said, I think people will shoot more or we know that people will shoot more if it's a more comfortable experience. And so I'm thinking about myself. I'm thinking about my son, you know, in the future here, I want him to have enjoyable shooting experiences and, and do I. And so this has gotten my attention. Well, it should. And you know, from hunting with me that I have just started to experience the first stages of hearing loss. And that is because and not, at the point that I started shooting competitively, I was using the appropriate ear protection as I, and I was actually doubling down. But uh, early in my career, when I was running and testing and trialing hunting dogs and gunning for hunt tests, we actually shot so many shotgun rounds, you know, with like dual shooters side by side to put birds down for our uh, testing or trialing uh, competitors. I don't know how many shotgun blasts I've had next to my head and that I've actually shot myself. And to the point of where, you know, that's, that's done permanent damage. So I try and take hearing protection in the woods now when I deer hunt. And I will tell you in tight quarters in the woods of the Northeast, I don't hunt a lot of fields to see the deer and try and get your hearing protection on and get the shot off. I've tell out of the past five times I've had to do it. I've gotten my, my hearing, hearing protection on zero times. So to be able to have that just on the end of your, your firearm, I think is a, is a much more efficient and effective way to go. There was a recent episode on the Meat Eater podcast. I'd encourage you to check out. It may have been three episodes ago. They had a, a woman on there who I believe is an audiologist and talking about ear protection. And it was really, really interesting. They even tested uh, a lot of the, the folks on the show and their results. Uh, they talk about their results and so on. So check that out, um, our friends at Meat Eater. Mike, let's transition here. Trail cameras are out. That has become a July 4th weekend tradition for me. So I got everything out and dusted off and, and where I needed it, fresh batteries. I'm actually cataloging all my cameras now. I think you inspired me to do this. You'd be so proud. 
I have a spreadsheet. Yep. I have a spreadsheet that says when I put batteries in, when it was deployed, when I last checked it. And so I thought of you every step of the way that I did that. And I'm already getting, so I've got several, Moultrie Mobile is one of our sponsors as well. And I've got several of their units out there and I'm already getting pictures sent to my phone. And so the deer are starting to mow down my young soybeans that are coming up, which is good and bad. And uh, also, I will say that getting those cameras out and putting them on trees is actually, that's my first feelings I start to get about, you know what, before too long, this is going to be for real. So does it hit you the same way when you get out and do that? It does, because every year is different. And even though like, I don't identify a target buck, I still like to know that there are bucks that are going to interest me to hunt that area. And I've been doing some, I've been doing a lot of cyber scouting because again, I'm making a move from one state to another and I'm trying to expand my, my area so that I can bounce around in the most appropriate times. And so uh, I have, and I am going to put cameras up a little bit sooner than I usually do this year, just because I feel like I'm a little bit behind the eight ball in regards to at least establishing a fair amount of hunting locations in New York so that I can have a successful season. And I will say, and you and I've talked about this, there's not a huge benefit right now to having cameras out there if we're being honest about it. Um, what I'm seeing on my cameras right now is going to help me almost zero when it comes to fall. I remember last year when I had cameras out early and it was the first full year on my property for me, um, very few of the bucks that I saw that became regulars on my place even showed up until September-ish time and definitely October. And once my food plot started coming in and being lush, that's when I had that activity. I expect that again. But this time of year, it's more just about recreation. It's getting out there. It's getting pictures. I also love to get pictures of bears and bobcats and all the things that I have running around my area. And occasionally deer. I have one buck that I got a picture of that looks like it's going to be promising. And that's exciting too, whether or not it sticks around or not. So really, you're not putting cameras out this time of year to do a whole lot of scouting. And I think, Mike, that's why you traditionally don't put them out this early. Well, it's I'm a little bit different in my mindset, as we talked about when we had Paul on, is I use the the trail cameras as my in-season scouting in regards to future seasons. So the the cameras I'm putting out this year in New York, I won't, I'll collect that data and then I'll start to formulate my plan where on which of these properties do I need to be at what time of the year. And I, what I also do is I also, I also will throw a sit at some of those locations because obviously we know that trail cameras can't capture a 365 degree um, viewpoint and the distance. So, but the putting a cameras out now will at least tell you, is this an area that I should be interested in? And like you said, some places, uh, some are deer, some more specifically target bucks, some don't, but the areas that I, I look at in some of these uh, public lands and bigger tracks of timber, I'm looking for these terrain features and funnel points. And if I'm getting consistent pictures of a buck that in, or bucks, plural, that interest me, I'm definitely going to throw a, have a camera in there and throw one or two sits in this year until I find that specific spot, that specific tree at what specific time of the seasons moving forward. So that's where I'm at. 
Yep, makes a lot of sense. So anyway, at least we got some cameras out. We can report on that going forward to see what we're all seeing. I'm seeing some on social media show up. It's interesting how different parts of the country you see antler growth is ahead of other areas in the country, which is interesting. So always just fascinating in the whitetail world. And cameras tell us a lot about that. I'm also, I think the other thing that inspired me to, other than other than just the cameras, uh, I had mentioned I think before that I was going to try a thumb style release with my bow I got my bow out and started doing some shooting with that uh, I will tell you that the first handful of shots I was I was really uh, uh, let's put it this way it, it, they weren't great and so I was concerned like uh oh that was this a huge mistake and do I need to just throw it back in my bag and grab my other uh, trigger style release but I will say Mike after I got through that initial stage. I really liked my results with it. I was very consistent and got comfortable with it really in a matter of about 10 minutes. And so I'm going to continue to pursue that and, and try to become expert with that thumb release. I don't know if you've ever tried one or not. I have tried one and I, I, let me see. I can't say I, I didn't care for it, but I can't say that I found it any, any different in my shooting. I, I mean, I'm just from, the training that you know that I've had and the amount of shooting that I've done, I have a my shooting routine is consistent pretty much no matter what you put in my hand or what type of bow or, or firearm you put in my hand. It's that I had it's just that mental control that in the steps and stages that we go through. And just as long as you are mentally present through that process and you don't actually shut down and go audio video shut off and just let it happen, you um your shots and your groups are consistently pretty decent they're pretty good so um to me it, it, i didn't, it didn't notice a, a significant difference to make me want to change anything yeah yep well that's like it, for me it's just i wanted to try something different and i think i like the feel of this and i'm going to continue to practice with it uh, also as you saw this mike i texted you some pictures i began building the platform that's going to hold my new uh, i'm going to get a redneck ghillie blind and so I got this platform, it's going to be about eight feet high, maybe just under that, and uh, put the ghillie blind on it. Not a huge gun hunter, but for me, I've got this really neat area where I can see down over the hill to one food plot and another food plot in front of me. And I was thinking more so, less for me and more so for my son or, uh, you know, uh, anyone that I invite over to hunt the property as part of like a field to fork event, just to be a nice, comfortable place for them to sit and have that elevated a position but feel safe at the same time and have a pretty good view so i'm looking forward to finishing that project up yeah i think that's going to be exciting to see because i know what spot you're talking about i've seen it um you know it's it's just going to be a really convenient location that has a high potential for either entertainment or to harvest a deer for almost anybody it could even be someone with a uh, physical disability that's a real easy access, but to have a really good chance at seeing deer, I think it's a great spot. Yeah, I'm looking forward to sitting there, if nothing else, just to observe. I think it'll be fun, a fun thing to do. So, hey, B-team report. I don't know what you have, Doc. Do you have anything? Um, it's not so much B-team. It's just the fact that, you know, this is just my luck. But uh, as we know that I'm trying to self-repair my my four-wheeler and i bought the fuel injector for it and so i start taking off the plastics and and darn it if i just where they have that fuel injector is just going to be a nightmare i'm gonna have to remove the throttle body i might have to loosen up the gas tank just to even access it but to replace it it's just simply i'm, I'm plugging the electronics and then it's just press fit and then it has a 
not really a housing. It has like a stabilizing bar that holds it in place and with two Phillips head screws, but I just can't get the angle on those screws. So I've been fighting with that. That's turned into a multi-day event. So it's not really B team. It's just the fact that I'm not a mechanic in that capacity and I don't have the right tools and I'm still too stubborn just to go and wait the three weeks for them to, to, to fix it. Cause that's how long they're telling me it's going to take. And I'm going to probably be at that time frame at the end of the day because of my poor mechanic skills and lack of awesome tools, I guess. Well, you know, they do that on purpose, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, but no, Hey, I get it. I mean, there's my dad. He'll do that. He'll have a little project that, you know, he could either just, you know, or if he's shopping for something, he could just buy something. It might cost a little bit more initially, but then by the end of it, after he's done all the work to it or whatever, he ends up at the same amount of money anyway, or having a project done, he ends up with a lot of stress and frustration. And so I get it. I do like to do do it yourself stuff too, but then I've also learned that sometimes I just hire a professional. So anyway, keep us posted on that. I'm looking forward to hearing how that goes. My B team report is I said, I went out and set up trail cameras. And as soon as it happened, I thought, well, here's my B team report. So I get out there and I feel like I have everything I need, but in the one food plot, there's not really a tree or anything to hang the camera on. So I take, I, I'm like, well, I'm good. I've got my post out there and I'll, I'll set up my fence post. And I have a, a nice adapter that holds my camera on the fence post. And lo and behold, I did not take my sledgehammer. And so if you can imagine this, I'm out there, literally, I'm trying to use rocks to drive this, oh yeah, to drive this fence post down into the ground into old strip mine soils. And I, let's just say I broke the rock in three different, you know, three different times in three different places before I finally gave up. So uh, if anybody was watching that, uh, that would have been definitely a B-team video moment. So there were others along the way too. <laughs> But uh, that was probably my best one for the, for the last couple of weeks. So. All right, folks. Well, hey, we thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy this as much as we enjoy putting it together for you. Thank you again. Thank you for your support. And, hey, we'll see you in a couple weeks in the next episode. I'm sure we'll have some new B-team reports for you. National Deer Association, where we are united for deer. <laughs>